From New York, this is Democracy Now! Facing an enemy that embeds itself among civilians, who hides in and fires from schools, from hospitals, makes this incredibly challenging. But the daily toll on civilians in Gaza, particularly on children, is far too high. Secretary of State Antony Blinken criticizes the civilian death toll in Gaza, but refuses to call for a ceasefire. As Blinken continues his Mideast tour, we'll speak with the first Biden political appointee to resign over the administration's policies in Gaza. My name is Tariq Habash. I'm a former Biden administration political appointee. I was the first political appointee to resign from my position. Uh, in the administration due to the ongoing administration's policies with respect to millions of Palestinian lives in Gaza. Then is Israel using starvation as a weapon of war in Gaza? At least one million Palestinians in the Gaza Strip, half of them children, are starving. They are starving because of Israel's deliberate use of starvation as a weapon of war against the people it occupied. We'll go to Tel Aviv to speak with the Israeli human rights group Salem about their new report, Israel is Starving Gaza, which finds starvation is not a byproduct of war, but a direct result of Israel's declared policy, they say. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Israel's intensified its bombing and ground assault in central and southern Gaza. Dozens of people were killed in overnight attacks, including in the so-called safe zone of Rafa City. In the occupied West Bank, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas in Ramallah today as protesters outside condemned the U.S. funding and backing of Israel's devastating assault on Gaza, which has now killed over 23,000 Palestinians in just over three months. On Tuesday, Blinken met with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, reaffirming the U.S.'s unique bond with Israel, advocating for a regional resolution that, quote, includes a pathway to a Palestinian state. Blinken addressed reporters in Tel Aviv. We want this war to end as soon as possible. Um, there's been far too much loss of life, far too much suffering. Uh, but it's vital that Israel achieve its very legitimate objectives of ensuring that October 7th can never happen again. In today's meetings, I was also uh, crystal clear. Palestinian civilians must be able to return home as soon as conditions allow. They must not be pressed to leave Gaza. Blinken also rejected South Africa's genocide case against Israel at the International Court of Justice, which starts Thursday as meritless. A staggering 1.9 million Gazans have been displaced, over 85 percent of the territory's population. This is eight-year-old Abdel Jabir Mohammed Al-Farah in Khan Yunis, who was forced to flee his home with his father and younger brother. We were living safely. Now we are left in the streets. No tent or anything. We are staying in the street. We have no place or anything. 
I never saw bombing like this in my life. I was in third grade. I did not complete my school year. This is something I never saw in my life. The situation is very tragic. We're asking all countries to send aid, open the Rafah border crossing to get all the aid in, to end the war, end this injustice against us. Academics for Peace, a grassroots group of Israeli-American and Jewish-American scholars, have released a petition with over 2,000 signatories, including five Nobel laureates, calling on the U.S. to lead negotiations on an immediate ceasefire a hostage-prisoner exchange, and getting humanitarian aid to Gaza. Academics for Peace write, quote, 75 years of displacement, 56 years of occupation, and 16 years of blockade have generated an ever-worsening spiral of violence that can only be stopped with a political solution, they said. The San Francisco Board of Supervisors Tuesday passed a resolution calling for a sustained ceasefire in Gaza. It's the latest municipality to call for a ceasefire, even as the U.S. government refuses to do so. Last week, Bridgeport became the first city in Connecticut to adopt such a measure, and the Albany Common Council also approved a ceasefire resolution. Meanwhile, protests continue against lawmakers who refuse to demand a ceasefire and an end to U.S. support for Israel's assault. In Revere, Massachusetts, constituents of Democratic Whip Catherine Clark held a procession carrying white bundles to represent the shrouded bodies of more than 9,000 children who've been killed in Gaza. The protest ended in front of Clark's home, where Palestinian Americans delivered speeches. This is Leah Kaili. I will not appeal to your false sense of morality. It is obvious that politicians like you only speak the language of power. So hear me when I say this. Do not underestimate our power. We, your constituents, are your bosses. And as people of conscience, we charge you, Representative Clark, with genocide. Here in New York, constituents of Congressmember Elise Stefanik sent a letter urging the Republican lawmaker to, quote, resign immediately for your aiding and abetting genocide of Palestinians in Gaza by voting to send arms to the IDF to perpetuate the crime in violation of the Genocide Convention, unquote. Judges for the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals expressed skepticism as they heard arguments from Donald Trump's legal team Tuesday over his 2020 election subversion case. Trump's lawyers claimed he should receive immunity from criminal charges, arguing a president can only be charged with a crime if they've already been impeached and convicted by Congress. This is Judge Florence Pan questioning attorney D. John Sauer as Trump looked on. Could a president order SEAL Team 6 to assassinate a political rival? That's an official act in order to SEAL Team 6. He, he would have to be and would speedily be, you know, uh, uh, impeached and convicted before the criminal but prosecution. But if he weren't, there would be no criminal prosecution, no criminal liability for that? Chief Justice's opinion in Marbury against Madison and uh, uh, and our constitutional tradition and the plain language of the impeachment judgment clause all clearly presuppose that what the founders were concerned about was not. I asked you a yes or yes or no question. Could a president who ordered SEAL Team Six to assassinate a political rival who was not impeached would he be subject to criminal prosecution? If he were impeached and convicted first. 
Following the hearing, Donald Trump warned of bedlam if the Justice Department's case against him damages his chances at reelection. Trump also warned he'd go after Biden if reelected. He has to be careful because that can happen to him also. The next president, whoever that may be, has a statute of limitations that go back six years. That's a long time, Joe. You have to be very careful. Ecuador's President Daniel Noboa on Tuesday declared a state of emergency and internal armed conflict as drug trafficking violence continues to soar. Noboa's announcement came a day after one of Ecuador's most notorious drug lords escaped from prison and his hooded and armed men interrupted a live TV news broadcast taking the staff hostage. Noboa designated at least 20 drug trafficking organizations as terrorist groups, authorizing Ecuadorian military to do whatever it takes to suppress the crime factions. From this moment, all terrorist groups identified in the presidential decree is a military target. The present and the future of our homeland is at stake, and any act of terror will make us give in. We will not step back nor negotiate. Public good, justice, and order can't ask for permission or bow their head in front of terrorists. Norwegian lawmakers voted 80 to 20 to allow deep-sea mining, despite widespread warnings and condemnation from scientists, environmentalists, as well as the U.K. government and the European Union. Norway's government says seabed exploitation could help power an economy less reliant on fossil fuels. One of the Earth's remaining untouched habitats, the deep sea, contains raw materials, including cobalt, zinc and gold. Under Norway's new plans, companies will have to apply for exploration licenses and exploitation permits. The Environmental Justice Foundation called the decision an irrevocable black mark on Norway's reputation as a responsible ocean state, adding, quote, we know so little about the deep ocean, but we know enough to be sure that mining it will wipe out unique wildlife, disturb the world's largest carbon store, and do nothing to speed the transition to clean economies, unquote. Last year was the hottest year on record. The Pentagon has vowed to do better after Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin's prostate cancer diagnosis was disclosed Tuesday. President Biden received the news about the same time as the general public. This comes after revelations Biden and top Pentagon officials were also kept in the dark for several days about Austin's hospitalization last week following complications from the treatment. White House Chief of Staff Jeff Zients ordered a review of cabinet protocols for delegating authority, while some Republican lawmakers are calling for Austin to step down amidst the mounting controversy. Austin's doctors say he's expected to make a full recovery. Here in New York City, the first group of migrant families have been evicted from their temporary shelter as city officials begin to enforce a 60-day limit. About 40 migrant families were forced to leave a hotel in Midtown Manhattan Tuesday, where many had been staying for over a year. Some reapplied for access to shelter as they have nowhere else to go. We're human beings and need to be relocated because we need a roof to stay under, even more now that it's colder. They should think about the kids. I know it's not an obligation because they didn't ask us to come here. But if you see what someone goes through for someone to arrive here, it is hard. 
The time restriction was imposed by New York City Mayor Eric Adams in October, claiming it was necessary to relieve the city's shelter system that he says has been overwhelmed by the arrival of thousands of asylum seekers. About 70,000 migrants are currently being temporarily housed in hotels, tent camps and shelters for unhoused people. New York City controller Grad Lander rebuked Mayor Adams' claims. Everybody at the row had a room. We're kicking them out of their rooms. You can't say we don't have room. They're in rooms. Uh, do we need more money to provide more space? Yes. But I've talked to dozens of churches and synagogues and mosques who want to provide their space. Um, we need federal help, but we also need better management from City Hall and some basic compassion. Meanwhile, another 500 migrant families were relocated from a massive South Brooklyn tent camp to a nearby high school Tuesday night as heavy rains and winds hit the area. The Floyd Bennett Field Camp is set up on an isolated former airplane runway off the bay. The Labor Department issued a final rule Tuesday extending benefits and other protections to millions of hourly and low-wage gig workers. The move reverses a Trump-era rule and reclassifies independent contractors as employees, allowing them to access minimum wage, overtime pay, unemployment insurance and Social Security benefits. Janitors, home care workers, construction workers and truck drivers are among those who stand to benefit from the change. Businesses are expected to launch legal challenges and rideshare companies Uber and Lyft, which have been fighting the new policy, said they will not reclassify drivers, that the Labor Department could move to force both companies to abide by the new rule. And U.S. police forces killed over 1,200 people in 2023, making last year the deadliest for murders at the hands of law enforcement in at least a decade. That's according to data from the group Mapping Police Violence, which showed an average of about three people killed by police daily. This includes the fatal beating of 29-year-old black father Tyree Nichols in Memphis, who died one year ago today after being assaulted by officers from the elite Scorpion unit during a traffic stop. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. Coming up, we speak with the first Biden political appointee to resign over the administration's policies in Gaza. Stay with us. Matar Nayim, Soft Rain by Ferkat Elard. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. 
Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. We begin today's show looking at Gaza, where the death toll from Israel's assault has topped 23,300. On Tuesday, during a trip to Israel, U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken said the civilian death toll in Gaza is, quote, far too high, but he refused to call for a ceasefire. Facing an enemy that embeds itself among civilians, who hides in and fires from schools, from hospitals, makes this incredibly challenging. But the daily toll on civilians in Gaza, particularly on children, is far too high. We want this war to end as soon as possible. Um, there's been far too much loss of life, far too much suffering. Uh, but it's vital that Israel achieve its very legitimate objectives of ensuring that October 7th can never happen again. That was Tony Blinken speaking in Tel Aviv after meeting with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Blinken met with Palestinian leader Mahmoud Abbas today in Ramallah in the occupied West Bank. During Tuesday's press conference, Blinken went on to say Israel must not press Palestinians to leave Gaza and that the region needs to find a pathway to a Palestinian state. We continue to discuss how to build a more durable peace and security for Israel within the region. As I told the prime minister, every partner that I met on this trip said that they're ready to support a lasting solution that ends the long-running cycle of violence and ensures Israel's security. But they underscored that this can only come through a regional approach that includes a pathway to a Palestinian state. Blinken's trip to Israel and the Middle East comes as the Biden administration faces mounting criticism for supporting and arming Israel's assault on Gaza. We begin today's show with Tarek Habash. Last week, he became the first Biden appointee and just the second administration official overall to publicly resign from the Biden administration to protest Biden's support for Israel's war on Gaza. Tarek Abash is a Palestinian-American Christian who worked as a senior official at the U.S. Department of Education. In his resignation letter, he wrote, quote, I cannot stay silent as this administration turns a blind eye to the atrocities committed against innocent Palestinian lives and what leading human rights experts have called a genocidal campaign by the Israeli government, unquote. Tarek Abash, welcome to Democracy Now! Thanks so much for joining us. Can you talk about your decision-making? At what point you decided you had to leave the Biden administration, how long you've worked for him, and um, what you think of what's happening right now? Thank you so much, Amy, and thanks, Juan. Um, you know, for me, this was an incredibly difficult decision. Um, in a lot of ways, I was working my dream job. Um, I was working for a president who, uh, for years, uh, touted himself as an individual of empathy, an individual, a president, a leader who uh, cared about our education system, about uh, labor rights, about health care, about the environment. In a lot of ways, I was extremely aligned with the entire uh, domestic policy agenda of uh, President Biden, um, and I was able to work on issues that I truly cared about. Um, you know, I was part of the administration from the very beginning. 
um, coming up on three full years working in this administration. And even before that, I volunteered my time as, um, as someone who assisted the campaign on the policy development of that agenda with respect to higher education and student debt. Um, but it was really difficult as someone who both cared deeply about American democracy and cared deeply about improving the lives of millions of Americans to also feel like it was untenable to work for and represent an administration and a president that put conditions on my own humanity, um, that didn't believe that Palestinian lives were equal to the lives of other people. And, you know, that's just a really, really hard thing to deal with. And so for me, it, it wasn't a particular moment in time. I think it was a culmination of near daily dehumanization of Palestinian lives in Gaza, in the West Bank, and and policy and rhetoric that never really shifted over the last three months. And I think we have we even heard that yesterday from the Secretary of State, unfortunately. And, uh, Tarek, I'm wondering, uh, the uh, did you try to express your perspective or your viewpoints to people in the administration? And I'm wondering also what the response was of your direct uh, boss, uh, uh, Education Secretary Miguel Cardona, when you decided that to resign. Yeah, I mean, I I used every avenue available to me um, to be able to express my concerns both about the language that the administration, the White House, was using uh, to express concerns about the policies and how it undermines uh, the president's message um, on protecting democracy, on how uh, it undermines our uh, stature across the international community with respect to like being humanitarians and caring about human life. Um, and yeah, I spoke with the secretary on numerous occasions about this issue. I spoke with uh, the assistant secretaries. I spoke with the secretary's chief of staff. They're all extremely understanding of my uh, my personal plight and my personal frustration. And, uh, you know, they were very supportive of me on a personal level emotionally understanding, checking on me to make sure that I was doing okay. Um, and even in circumstances where the White House did listening sessions and had policy briefings for staff in particular, you know, I was there. I tried to raise uh, concerns, as did many of my peers and colleagues. Um, I think there was a different tone in the reception from the White House than, say, the Department of Education in particular. But I think the outcomes unfortunately, didn't change anything. I think we continued to see uh, doubling down on the current policies uh, that have led us to where we are today, which is the um, unconditional support of military funding and resources to an extremist Israeli regime that continues to both indiscriminately bomb Palestinians in Gaza and starve uh, millions of people. And you mentioned that you had uh, participated in, uh, in the uh, President Biden's original campaign. What do you sense is the implication for his reelection campaign of the uh, deep dissatisfaction, uh, not only with, among employees in his administration, uh, but of uh, young, uh, progressive and uh, liberal Americans uh, across the spectrum? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there are huge implications. I think we're already seeing those implications. The president is now really gearing up for uh, the 2024 election. We're months away, and we're seeing his, uh, his poll numbers really hitting real lows, particularly in communities that are uh, predominantly minority, predominantly younger. Uh, we're seeing a backlash, I think, in part to these policies and to our response. Um, and it feels like it's out of touch with the president's message around protecting democracy from authoritarianism. I think the president has spoken very directly to the American people about how important 2024 is uh, in terms of protecting our democracy. I think that is absolutely true, but it's also just not in line with the foreign policy approach to the region uh, and to Gaza in particular, as we are seeing the president and the administration provide unconditional support to an authoritarian Israeli government. Tarek Amash, what has been the response of your colleagues to quitting? And you talked about the difference between the response of um, the Department of Education and the White House. Um, have you gotten word from the White House? I, I haven't heard from the White House. Um, I have heard from countless colleagues across the federal government, um, people who I've worked very closely with, people who I didn't have the opportunity to work with, and people who um, we had numerous touch points across the three years that I was uh, at the Department of Education. And that response has been incredibly supportive. Um, I couldn't imagine the level of um, understanding and support and alignment with so many people. I think we've heard a lot about the level of dissent across the across the federal government with uh, with the administration's current policies. I think we've seen numerous dissent cables from the State Department um, be leaked. We've seen letters from USAID, from dozens of federal agencies, from interns dissent within the White House. I mean, it is across the board. Uh, but I think there's also so much more that we don't even realize because there are limitations to how people can share that information and, uh, and use the channels that are available to them. For me at the Department of Education and other domestic agencies, there aren't uh, the same types of private channels uh, that State Department has for dissent cables, for uh, foreign service officers and other employees. Um, I was fortunate because I had leadership that cared about me on a personal level, that wanted to check on me, and told me that if there were things that I wanted to communicate to the White House, to the highest levels of the White House, those messages would be communicated. Uh, the vast majority of people don't have that level of access and support from their leadership, from their agencies, and they don't have those structures in place. So I think in a lot of ways, the White House doesn't even know the level of dissent within its own ranks. And I think that's concerning. On Monday, President Biden spoke at the Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. That's where the white supremacist Dylan Roof shot dead eight black parishioners and their pastor in 2015, Clementa Pickney. Biden's speech was disrupted when a group of activists started chanting, cease fire now. Without light, there's no path from this darkness. 
As the protesters called for a ceasefire and were removed from the church, supporters of Biden started chanting four more years. President Biden then addressed the protest. I understand their passion, and I've been quietly working. I've been quietly working with the Israeli government to get them to reduce and significantly get out of Gaza. I'm using all that I can to do I was wondering, Tarek, if you think uh, President Biden's line has changed at all. I mean, reports are he's called his top uh, aides to the White House, uh, absolutely furious why his poll numbers are so low, when the poll figures show people are so dismayed at what's happening now. I wanted to quote a retired Israeli Major General, Yitzhak Brick, who conceded in November all of our missiles, the ammunition, the precision-guided bombs, all the airplanes and bombs, it's all from the U.S. He said, the minute they turn off the tap, you can't keep fighting. You have no capability. Everyone understands that we can't fight this war without the United States, period. Um, talk about what you think Biden understands and what he needs to do right now. I, mean, I, th I think it's really important to recognize that, you know, American voters see this as a domestic policy issue just as much as a foreign policy issue. It is affecting what is going to happen in the upcoming election. I think people are really dissatisfied with the response of the administration. I think that we're seeing that in the church a couple of days ago with the protests. We're seeing it with protests across the country. We're seeing city council members and uh, local legislators and policymakers take stances to support an immediate ceasefire. That disconnect from the people is really concerning for American democracy, but it's concerning because it feels like digging into uh, the current position means that it's not as valuable to listen to the people and that our policymakers are going to make the decisions that they're going to make. And I think when we see an administration circumvent Congress by issuing millions, tens of, hundreds of millions of dollars of weapons to a foreign government and circumvent, circumventing the processes that are in place, ignoring really important uh, laws to uh, protect uh, both Americans, but also abide by international humanitarian law. I think there are significant implications for what that means for America uh, more broadly. Uh, Tarek, I wanted to ask you, you, you uh, in your work at the education department, you were focused particularly on higher education. I'm wondering what's your response to what's been happening on uh, so many campuses across the country and the the politicians in uh, or some politicians uh, in Congress trying to uh, to support and build up the the retaliation and targeting campaign faced by Palestinian rights advocates at the university campuses. I'm so glad you asked that question. I I feel like so I already mentioned a little bit how like Americans don't feel like this is just 
an issue away from home. This is also a domestic policy issue. I think that is extremely clear on college campuses that have for decades been the grounds for public dissent, for protests, for being able to have a free exchange of ideas and communicate on issues that are really difficult. I think American higher education is meant to be a place to allow free speech in all of its forms. I think that's really important. I think the Department of Education recognizes that. Um, but I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done. I think it's very clear the overcorrection uh, that we've seen by institutions of higher education and their response to the weaponization of language in particular on college campuses and by uh, political officials and right-wing extremists. I think at the end of the day, we need to ensure that students are safe, but we need to provide safe learning environments that do not infringe on their rights to be able to have those difficult conversations to learn about issues that matter in the world right now. And this particular conflict is the forefront of those conversations in so many ways. I think when we see students on college campuses show solidarity with the Palestinian struggle, when we see students on college campuses condemn the daily atrocities that we see that are starving millions of Palestinians and decades of oppression and occupation that have led to uh, unequal rights for Palestinians, I think that it's really important that we separate that from actual hate speech that is real and dangerous and growing across the country. And I think that you know, we've seen uh, politicians rely on the weaponization of language in order to minimize students' ability to organize and to speak about some really difficult issues. And we've seen that really affect the independence and the integrity of American higher education and the risks to academic freedom um, are very real, and that is a responsibility for the Department of Education. And I think that was one reason for me why it took so long um, to really take this position, because I did feel an obligation on the issues that I work directly on to be able to help move the ball forward and provide as much support as possible to students across the country. I'm wondering, you were still there, Tarek, uh, at the Department of Education when the three Palestinian students um, were shot in Burlington, um, one from Trinity, one from Haverford, and one from Brown, uh, Hisham Awatani, who is paralyzed from the chest down. Um, and I was wondering your response there and within the department, um, and also— if you feel you, you face a different future than someone like Josh Paul, longtime State Department um, official who quit over Biden administration policy, you are a Biden appointee. But if you face something different as a Palestinian American. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just to quickly touch on what happened in Vermont, which is absolutely horrific, I think Part of the problem is the, the constant dehumanization of Palestinians and what we've seen both uh, in the language that uh, the White House has used and in what we have seen in terms of coverage here across the United States in the media 
making it seem like Palestinians, and in particular Palestinian men, are less uh, deserving of support, of humanity, of emotion. Um, that allows people to feel like attacking them is acceptable, and that's just—that's a horrifying thing to realize, is that as, as a Palestinian, as a Palestinian man, as a Palestinian Christian, so many aspects of my own identity are erased on a daily basis. And um, it's, it's truly horrifying that we allow that type of dehumanization to exist in our country today. Um, for me, um, it's very personal. And um, yeah. And talk about your background, Tarek, your family's background, your history. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm an American. I was born and raised here in the United States, uh, but I descend from generations of Palestinians. I, identi- I am a Palestinian-American. Um, like I said, I'm a Palestinian Christian. My family has been Christians for as far back as we know. Um, and in 1948, my grandparents and many of my aunts and uncles who were alive at the time uh, were forcibly displaced from their homes in Yaffa. And for those who don't know, it's on the water, um, essentially where Tel Aviv is today. And they had to leave everything. They left their homes. They left their businesses. They left their friends. Uh, they saw a huge migration, a forced migration of their peers and, peop- and, and massive levels of death. And for them, it was about self-preservation, about preserving future generations of their family. And they walked for miles to find somewhere safe. And I think it was happenstance that, you know, someone told them, oh, we think it's safe toward the east. Let's walk that direction. And as, like, as a Palestinian living in America, as a Palestinian living in the broader diaspora, um, not being able to return, um, there's a level of guilt that you have knowing that a decision that was made 75 years ago to walk east instead of south toward Gaza changed the entire trajectory of your life, changed the trajectory of your family's lives, because, you know, my family— uh, has been here in the States for a long time. Um, But I could have very easily been in Gaza. My family could have been in Gaza. Um, It's it's extremely emotional, and you feel guilty because you are safe, and you can't do enough to protect lives that are being taken indiscriminately. What are your plans now, Tarek? I don't know. you know, I think this is such an important issue. I'm doing everything I can just to use whatever channels that I have to communicate about how important it is to end the violence immediately, um, to preserve as many lives as possible. I think we've heard the White House and the Secretary of State talk repeatedly about minimizing civilian casualties. We can do a lot better than minimizing them. We can end civilian casualties in Gaza and in the West Bank. Um, I think it's up to us to make that decision, to do a little bit of introspection on our own policies and positions, and recognize that 
It's been over three months. The military route has been an epic failure. And the only path to peace, as the Secretary of State talked about just yesterday, is a diplomatic one. And when we talk about providing humanitarian aid and increasing the level of aid that's getting to, uh, to people in Gaza who are starving, it's really hard to do that if there is continuous bombing of all of the safe regions. There's nowhere safe left. There hasn't been anywhere safe left for weeks and weeks. It's really important that you end the violence so that you can provide the level of support that's needed if we want to seriously contemplate a future for Palestinians. Tarek Abash, I want to thank you for being with us. Former Biden administration political appointee who resigned last week from the Department of Education in response to President Biden's support of Israel's war in Gaza. He was the department's only Palestinian-American appointee. He was the first Biden appointee to quit. Coming up, is Israel using starvation as a weapon of war in Gaza? We'll speak with an Israeli human rights group. Stay with us. Deeds, not words, by the legendary jazz drummer, composer, and activist Max Roach. Today would have been his 100th birthday. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Several United Nations agencies, including the World Food Program, say Israel's bombardment of Gaza could lead to a famine throughout the entire Gaza Strip within six months unless immediate action is taken. Hundreds of thousands of displaced Palestinians are now in Rafah, and many are waiting in line for hours for small amounts of food as aid agencies struggle to meet the demand. I came here to get food. I've been here since 9 a.m. just to get a plateful of food because this situation is very difficult. We are from Gaza City and we came to Rafah. The people of Rafah received us and welcomed us. But the numbers are large and the situation is very difficult. There is no money to buy food and there is no flour. We have no money to buy anything at home. There is no gas or anything that would help us to cook even a plate of lentils. We come here to get this plate of food, and it is not enough. This comes as hundreds of trucks trying to bring aid to Gaza are backed up for miles in Egypt at the Rafah border crossing and have been forced to wait for weeks to enter. On Tuesday, British Foreign Secretary David Cameron urged Israel to lift barriers on delivering humanitarian aid into Gaza, citing, quote, real widespread hunger. Cameron was cross-examined by the Scottish MP Brendan O'Hara. Two or three minutes ago, in answer to a reply to the chair, you said, and I quote, 
One of the things we'd like the Israelis to do is switch the water back on. Now, that says that they turned it off. It says that you recognise they have the power to turn it on. Therefore, isn't turning water off and having the ability to turn it back on but choosing not to, isn't that a breach of international humanitarian law? It's just something they ought to do, in my opinion. Of course they should do it. Every human being would say you don't cut people's water supply off. But I'm asking you in your position as Foreign Secretary, around the point of international humanitarian law, if Israel have the power to turn the water back on that they turned off, surely that is a flaking breach of international humanitarian law. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm not a lawyer. My, my view is they ought to switch it on because uh, the north of Gaza, the conflict is now effectively over there. And so getting more water and power into northern Gaza would be a very good thing to do. You don't have to be a lawyer to make a judgment about that. You just have to be a human being. Last month, the U.N. Security Council passed a resolution to immediately increase aid deliveries in Gaza, and Human Rights Watch accused Israel of using starvation as a method of warfare, which violates international humanitarian law. Well, for more, we're going to Tel Aviv. We're joined by Sarit Mikhaili, international advocacy lead for the Israeli human rights group B'Tselem, which has just published a new report, Israel is Starving Gaza that says starvation is, quote, not a byproduct of war, but a direct result of Israel's declared policy. Sarit, welcome to Democracy Now! Lay out exactly what you found and what you feel can be done about it. Well, in very basic terms, almost everyone in Gaza is hungry almost all of the time. Uh, 2.3 million people are surviving mostly on sometimes one meal a day, people skipping meals in order to feed their their children, people busy constantly looking for the next meal, for the next source of food for them and their families and children. And all of this is happening uh, in a place that is pretty much an hour's drive from here, right, where supplying humanitarian assistance uh, and food and all the necessities like water and other things that people rely on, should not be a difficult problem. We're not talking about some sort of remote region uh, internationally. We're talking about an area that is accessible, where the things that impede this provision of food for people who are starving uh, is a, a declared policy by Israel. The fact that Israel isn't allowing enough trucks in, the fact that Israel isn't providing uh, the ability, the the... the a logistical uh, infrastructure to actually drive this food into Gaza and through places where it's possible to do. Um, and, and many other decisions taken by the Israeli government that are impacting this, that are making it, uh, uh, making the amount of assistance that is coming into Gaza simply a fraction of what the population needs. Uh, and, and Amy, you quoted the international experts on this issue. Uh, within a month, they expect almost all of the uh, residents of the Gaza Strip to be up to what is phase three of this scale of of horror, uh, of hunger. Um, And this is simply unacceptable um, when it's very clearly preventable. And the the things that that, um, uh, were said in in the British Parliament by uh, Minister Cameron are very clearly um, a clarification that this is the result of Israeli policies and actions. This is not just some sort of coincidence or just some unfortunate uh, byproduct of war. Well, Sarit, I wanted to ask you, uh, how is Israel uh, 
controlling the food supply, especially at, at, in uh, Rafa, where uh, Rafa leads into Egypt. So how exactly does it uh, manage to continue to prevent right. uh, trucks from getting in? So Juan, the, the, let's uh, even look at the, the past situation. I mean, Gaza was on the brink of collapse even before this war began with the horrific October 7th attack by Hamas against Israelis, right? So this, is, this has been a situation of food insecurity since the beginning of the Israeli blockade on Gaza, almost 17 years ago. Uh, but the Israeli decisions to cut off electricity, to cut off the water supply that Israel sells Gaza, to not allow all of the movement of the international humanitarian provision of supplies, those decisions made it almost impossible from the start for even bakeries to operate and provide for the people. And now what we so so the collapse was very quick and based on a very um, long period of deprivation. But now the issue really is that there needs to be hundreds of trucks entering Gaza every day. And uh, just a fraction of that is entering. This is happening because Gaza, uh, the, the Rafah crossing is just not equipped uh, for the movement of goods. Goods should be entering Gaza through other border crossings that are generally with Israel, not with Egypt. Um, uh, um, Israel is also prohibiting uh, the provision of food purchased on the Israeli market. So, so the aid agencies have to bring it from Egypt, which is even more difficult. Plus, there are also many restrictions on the ability to distribute it while, once it actually gets in to the Gaza Strip. And then we see these awful uh, uh, images of desperate people charging these um, these uh, provision convoys that are coming in and, and taking what they can because they are simply so desperate and the food isn't reaching uh, some areas of Gaza. So you have a situation where in some areas of Gaza, things are only just bad, whereas in others, things are just absolutely atrocious. And this is not a very large area. So certainly, and I think it's recognized now by the international community, the Israeli government is at fault, is responsible for this. And this should lead to immediate international action, not simply conversations with Israeli policymakers, but actually clear clarifications that Israel is violating both its legal obligations, i.e. Um, this is a war crime, and also that this is simply an immoral way uh, to treat a, a civilian population. After a visit to the Rafah crossing between Egypt and Gaza, um, U.S. Democratic senators Jeff Merkley and Chris Van Hollen blasted the Israeli process for screening the aid. Senator Van Hollen spoke to CBS Face the Nation. This is what he said. Many items uh, that are, should be allowed to go into Gaza, water sort of filtration systems, uh, other systems like that, uh, were in a warehouse uh, of rejected items that we visited. Uh, while we were there, we saw a truck turned away uh, that had a big box from UNICEF, which is, of course, the UN uh, organization that helps children. Uh, it was a unit to help with water desalinization. Um, it was rejected. And when one item on a truck is rejected, the entire truck uh, is rejected. The other big issue is within Gaza, uh, the so-called deconfliction process, which is just a fancy name for those who are providing humanitarian assistance to have the confidence that they can deliver it uh, without being killed. 
If you can talk more about this, Sarit, again, um, the senator, Van Hollen, is the one who has also called for release of more information about the Israeli sniper who murdered um, Shireen Abu Akhla on May 11, 2022, um, in Jenin, uh, in the occupied West Bank. Yeah, absolutely, Amy. Well, we certainly appreciate the leadership that Senator Van Hollen uh, and actually Senator Merkley are, are showing on this issue. And it is absolutely crucial that U.S. lawmakers, both from uh, uh, the more progressive uh, part of the Democratic Party, but also from the mainstream security uh, oriented kind of more established part of the Democratic Party are engaging with uh, President Biden to demand action on this issue, simply an unconscionable uh, 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 situation that is unfolding in, in front of us. Now, I'd like to refer to the second part of, of uh, Senator Holland's uh, discussion of the, the dangers inside of Gaza. Yes, absolutely. There's been another uh, update by the office of the UN Office for Co Coordination of, Humanita of Humanitarian Affairs uh, d discussing an additional rejection by the Israeli authorities of another attempt to coordinate the transfer of medical goods into hospitals in the northern Gaza Strip. This was only uh, uh, the day before yesterday, apparently. So we're seeing that there are simply uh, so many difficulties uh, in trying to bring the aid, deliver the aid with safety for the aid prov providers, obviously, in this area that is bombed. And this brings us to the essential issue, which is that there needs to be a ceasefire in the Gaza Strip. There needs to be a halt to Israeli airstrikes and bombardments in order for, the, for this food and aid and assistance and not only food, medical supplies and other necessities have to be provided. And this is one, the, the continuation of the hostilities is making this provision far too dangerous and impossible currently. This is one other a, a reason why we need this to stop. B'Tselem has called uh, for a ceasefire. Uh, uh, but, of course, the most important reason for this to stop is to stop the killing of civilians, of women and children and human beings in the Gaza Strip in a way that absolutely is disproportionate uh, um, to what is uh, um, uh, facing Israel right now um, and to the policies of, you know, basically airstrikes bombing residential uh, homes. All of this uh, is one, you know, is uh, and the, the huge death toll, 23,000 Gazans and counting as a result, you know, that can only be described as a revenge attack uh, after the horrific uh, death toll that Israelis have suffered. But, um, is, you know, we simply cannot accept, um, you know, the, not, it's certainly not moral and it's certainly not legal uh, that we uh, inflict such a degree uh, of suffering on Gazans, we Israelis, regardless of how much we have suffered and how horrific uh, uh, we have been affected by this. There is simply no justification for the continuation of this uh, Israeli uh, uh, attack on Gaza, and it has to stop. There has to be a ceasefire. Uh, Sarit, I wanted to ask you, you're talking to us from Tel Aviv. Uh, how aware are Israelis of the catastrophic yeah. situation so close to uh, where uh, most of them live? And is there any significant portion of the population that cares? Well, unfortunately, Juan, the situation is uh, very, very depressing and, and, and just 
painful when we look at the responses of many Israelis possibly even the majority of Israelis, to what we see now in Gaza. I think the majority of Israelis still support what we are doing there. There is very little um, protest or a very little rejection of the methods that Israel is employing uh, in its uh, attack against the civilian population of Gaza. Uh, the Israeli media doesn't really broadcast much information about the suffering of Gazans, the uh, devastation, the utter devastation of infrastructure the loss of homes and the hum, you know, human beings who are being killed on a daily basis, on an hourly basis. Um, but one of the saddest aspects of this is that even when people are aware of it, there are so many politicians and influencers and people who are simply rejecting any need to uh, respect the humanity of people in Gaza. Uh, uh, and, and unfortunately, some of the people who are aware of the huge uh, price, that the, to the horrific uh, toll that Gazans are paying, are not, uh, you know, are simply um, uh, okay with it. Uh, and this is one of the most depressing aspects of, uh, of what is going on now in terms of the, you know, total dehumanization of Gazans in, among many people in Israel. There are, I should, I should mention, there are Israelis who are opposed to this uh, situation. There are Israelis who are calling to recognize the humanity of Gazans, but we are in the minority, unfortunately. Yeah, we have less than a minute left, but I wanted to ask you quickly. You've also been monitoring the violence in the West Bank uh, that has gotten far less attention. Could you talk about what you've chronicled? Absolutely, yes. So, since October 7th, there has also been a massive increase in the violence by Israeli soldiers and, and also security forces and Israeli settlers against Palestinians in the West Bank. It has led to a really large number of uh, uh, Palestinians killed uh, by soldiers and by Israeli settlers. It has led to takeovers of land by settlers, to the removal, to the forcible transfer of Pal Palestinian herding communities from very large parts of the West Bank. Uh, it's led to the, you know, the total destruction of the olive harvest, for example, as a coordinated uh, campaign by settlers to damage the Palestinian economy. And all of these things are happening with very little international attention. And again, this has got to end. There has to be a recognition of what is going on throughout the West Bank, of Israeli actions there and how. And as, as we call when it comes to the situation in the Gaza Strip, there has to be interaction, international action to hold Israeli uh, policymakers accountable for their decisions that have led to these uh, to these uh, horrific uh, results. Sarid Mahaili, we have to leave it there. We thank you so much for being with us with the Israeli Human Rights Group at Salem. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez.